So hello and welcome to the New Gig Podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Hodgson, and today I'm delighted to be joined by incoming professor of inclusive AI cultures at Utrecht University and also co-founder at FemLabs, Professor Dr. Payal Aurora. How are you doing, Payal? Good, Glenn. Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure to have you on. So please, let's give us a little bit of a background about your journey and also what the aspects you're looking at the moment you've got a lot on your plate a lot of interesting balls in the air to give us a little bit of background about what you're doing at the moment sure so um you know i come from india and i actually also come from uh the industry so i used to be in the art world believe it or not i used to be an art dealer in new york and san francisco for many years and the reason i say this is because i obviously made a career shift and i entered into academia and that's a long story um, one day over a drink. But, um, you know, what's important for me is that I learned to speak in a way which can be convincing and compelling because I had to. That was part of the art dealing. And I believe that academia needs it even more so because we're doing so much amazing thinking and doing at, you know, public cost. Yes. Because these are much of the Dutch universities are public universities. And Right now, we have a momentum on, you know, doing societal impact, but we don't have the tools at place to enable us to translate what I consider extraordinarily dense material into accessible and engaging insights for society to engage. Yeah. So what I do is basically in the area of how do we make the systems that we are living with and living within, which is these AI-enabled digital spaces, uh, more responsible, more amenable, and uh, you know, aligned with our public and contemporary values that we hold dear. Because as we know, COVID has established the fact that it is an underlying paradigm that is shaping every aspect of our lives. Yeah. And so this is very much uh, the area I am embedded in. Mm, absolutely. Well, I think we should have another podcast on the art world of sort of take that as stage two in that and hear some of the stories. But I think what you're saying is really important in terms of, you know, things can't be done in isolation, uh, however important the work. If people don't know about it, if people don't hear about it, then the impact for society and actually sort of the, the value it can bring is much diminished. And I think that sort of the, the AI piece at the moment a lot of people talk about it, but really to get under the skin of what's happening at the moment and the impact for society uh, is something that's so important, I'd say, at the moment, moment Payal. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think uh, what's happening currently is that, uh, and it is a sort of a build-up over almost a decade where we started with a lot of enthusiasm with uh, novel digital innovations that surely we are going to become one happy kumbaya space, right? Yeah. And uh, it, it's like we uh, our identities will not matter and we will really have a true democracy in a critical public space, which mm. is digital in nature. Yeah. And then, you know, uh, democracy started to splinter and we are disproportionately, uh, you know, putting the tech at the center of it versus our social institutions, which okay. should be taking more of our onus to rein in tech, right? Mm. Um, so I think now the pendulum swung to the other end because if 
you know, and this is the focus of my chair on inclusive AI cultures is who is being included, what is being included. Clearly, we are in a data paradigm where data is the so-called oil and it is feeding the very mechanisms of shaping the fabric within which we live. But mm. how do we ensure that this data, these data systems are, you know, working for, uh, working for us? And part of this has to do with coming together as a society across dimensions because our biggest contemporary issues today are global in nature, whether it's a climate crisis, whether it is, you know, um, the flow of people, uh, you know, peace and war. So, you know, uh, and the need for social solidarity. And much of this has to do with a need to build global systems, but we've seemed to lost the taste for it. So yeah. we push back against any sort of so-called universalism because we are going hyper-local, inward looking, you know, uh, us versus them. We are Europeans. Let's create European uh, ethics and values, which uh, can, you know, yeah. shape AI systems. And we need to move forward and look at it in terms of let's come up with a critical global uh, stakeholder, uh, you know, that has deep interest in sustaining and shaping these spaces. Mm. And I think it's a good point you raised there about the sort of the fragmentation issue, because we're seeing it more and more this kind of uh, uh, isolationist approach, whether it's on technology, whether it's on trade uh, or general sharing of ideas. There's uh, sadly this inward looking phase that we're going through at the moment uh, along so many different levels. And it's being so negative. Um, and, you know, no one is shining a good light on themselves in terms of the approach at the moment either. Everyone is kind of retreating back into the shells, sadly. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, you bring up something very important is that there's a real uh, pessimism pervading uh, our, you know, our policies, our mindsets, the way in which we are approaching these systems. And, you know, all we have to do is just step outside the sort of global North bubble, uh, because, you know, I think a lot of that pessimism is emanating from there. And when we go into any context in the global South, you will immediately feel the deep enthusiasm for uh, new technologies, despite right. the major socioeconomic pressures and the high surveillance risks. Because if you think about it, 90% of young people live outside the West. That's yeah. a significant, that's basically the future generations, right? Yeah. And they see digital technologies in remarkably different ways. Mm. So I think uh, we need to shed much of our paternalism and see what is actually going on, which is very much, you know, what I've been trying to do in the last two decades. And I yeah. hope to continue doing that. Well, I think this is this is absolutely right because this 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 lack of inclusion and you know whether it's sort of the US, the European Union going off by themselves and trying to come up with a solution and not having that dialogue, not having that sort of open debate with the global south to maybe come up with a sort of better solution. It's kind of well, this is what we've come away in our corner, you will implement it and there's no room for discussion and we're seeing this in trade, on environmental policy, everything at the moment. Uh, and we, we kind of uh, closed down to any kind of meaningful interaction and dialogue, it seems. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's all stick, 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 right? I mean, I think Completely. we've even forgotten the the sight of a carrot anymore. And, <laughs> yes. uh, 
you know, that's, I mean, how, if you think about how it was when we were younger, I'm just saying younger, not young, <laughs> it's, is that, uh, you know, you have to be optimistic because if you move, if you're trying to self-actualize, uh, you know, you're trying to become somebody, you're trying to carve a, a, a livelihood, you're trying to see who you can be, Obviously, yeah. you're driven by optimism. You have to see it as a pathway. And actually, in comparison to their current systems, social systems, where governments around the world are failing the youth, you know, chronically in providing uh, okay. new forms of jobs, employment, yeah. uh, the, you know, also uh, the rise of authoritarianism as well as paternalism, so paternalistic states, uh, and patriarchal states in majority of the world, that it is no wonder that the youth in relation to that see the digital as a little more liberating, a little more freeing. Mm. Whereas we in our little corner see it as all the things that are wrong with it. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't regulate. I'm just saying that we need to have a balanced conversation between regulation and you know uh, enablement. And yeah. and uh, digital flourishing, actually, even. And and I think we should explore a little bit that idea of digitalization and the transformation of society as well. And uh, and you put it perfectly in terms of how sort of the more of the youth or certainly the young younger members of societies who are digital natives they see it as an enabling and a and a. And a uh, a, a, an element of freedom and, and and choice, but also facilitation. Whereas maybe sort of the establishment see it as a, a as a threat and something to be cracked down on more than anything else. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about what is you know the future of the digitization uh, in society and our economy, um, um, you know, we have to see it as. The, I mean, we have to watch for the trends, right? And look at the creator economy, for instance. Mm. And I would say that it's not, we, we tend to look at the creator economy as if it's a niche, uh, but it is actually a massive growing niche. And in fact, it is the future of the nature of digital space because intrinsically, we are no longer just passive consumers, uh, you know, uh, that just consume content. We right. are co-creators. We are working with systems at play. And so, and not only that, that it tends to be a context collapse because in the creator economy, a lot of people are creating content, whether they're just sharing their grievances, coming up with support groups, mm. uh, sharing good ideas, you know, playing around. Basically, a lot of it is a lot of play and experimentation. Mm. But within these worlds, you also are circulating uh, news, uh, politics, healthcare information, yes. uh, yeah. political yeah. views. And so we need to reassess uh, the way in which we see the world, which is usually very clean cut segments. Oh, this is news and here's an app for that. This is, <laughs> you know, healthcare and there's an app for that. And if you look yeah. into the way in which development has taken out it it continues to you know be segmented and does not see it in a much more holistic manner and we need to have uh, we need to really break out of that mm, absolutely and you know given the sort of the focus that you've got um at the moment but, but but also what you're coming into as well can you say a little bit about the implications here for inclusion but also from gender issues as well uh, is there a is there a dynamic in play there that we should be uh, uh, aware of and should be supporting? 
Yes, I mean, so inclusion tends to have this uh, intuitive, positive connotation, right? Of course, who doesn't want to be included? I yeah. mean, it's it's like saying, do you want to have friends? <laughs> you know, depends on but... the friends, actually, Payal. <laughs> Some I could do without, but yeah. <laughs> but the reality is, look at this. Okay, in the data economy, um, one has to ask. Uh, being included is sufficient in itself for empowerment because we make this obvious correlation, which is not necessary, necessarily the case. Like, for instance, if we are indiscriminately collecting data of marginalized communities and building our AI systems without fair uh, distribution of value, then it is not empowering, right? It's exploitative right. and extractive. So we always, after the word inclusion, we need to ask to what end and who is benefiting? How mm. is the value being shared in what kind of collaborative way, right? Uh, uh, inclusive measures being taken. So these are the, I think, without these key questions, inclusion by itself can head in either direction. It could become uh, weaponized against the very population you're trying to you know, uh, bring into the fold right yeah. and when i say bring into the fold in terms of adhering to their voices their perspectives their concerns as well as aspirations so yeah. i think that's really the underlying dynamic about inclusion and when it comes to gender we see you know by not for instance there's a, a sort of a pivot downwards where women are voluntarily withdrawing from the internet i'm not just talking about a few apps in the last few years they're moving away from it because of the high uh, misogynistic content, the higher risks of their reputation being marred. Um, and that has actual physical consequences sometimes. And, mm. you know, when they, they dishonor their family and community, it could even result in deadly consequences for them. So right. if we do not, uh, you know, come up with systems of immediate and very thorough enforcement and you know screening of content and this is the onus on technology companies but also regulators to hold to technology companies accountable so you mm. should have 24 hours as soon as you know it's flagged as a uh, content that's not been permitted uh sexual content oftentimes uh that should be removed immediately and a variety of different measures which are pretty basic by the way it's not like i'm coming up with some groundbreaking stuff the problem is yep. we have come up with many solutions but it's just not being enforced right yep. and yep. so inadvertently then you're alienating a huge demographic which is half the world's population mm. yeah absolutely and it, so it's, it's really the case at the moment in terms of your research that sort of women are more negatively affected i mean you just need to go into sort of Twitter or uh, X, of course, as it's now called, and some of the most toxic, uh, appalling things that are come that are coming out there in terms of the uh, the comments, viewpoints. Uh, often, the sort of the cesspit of humanity seems to be on there. Uh, but where about you know we go up to sort of the um, Facebooks websites uh, and, and and LinkedIn, which is a little bit more positive in tone uh but um it, it's very much the sort of women who are more Im impacted by the sort of the negativity of social media yes absolutely because you know they can't just leverage on the attention economy and ride the wave like you know males because 
If you get too much attention, yeah, some can, <laughs> of course. No, I'm, I mean, uh, a lot of, uh, let me bracket this, a lot of women in patriarchal societies. Okay. Uh, like, so for example, it's, you can de de definitely leverage it if you're a Taylor Swift. <laughs> okay. I'm not talking in those regards, but I'm, yeah. you know, in the influencer economy, when you become too public in a patriarchal society, you're, you're considered a loose woman. I mean, because you're interacting with strangers online, you are probably showing too much flesh. You're showing your face in itself. It, just your publicness itself is breaking patriarchal norms. So okay. they do this despite a lot of risks to their physical well-being. And that's something that we take for granted as, you know, uh, in many liberal, uh, you know, democracies, which are only about... 10 to 15% of the world's mm. uh, countries, isn't it? So uh, I think we have to put that in perspective. Yeah. And do we see sort of attitudes changing now that sort of digitalization is here? It's, um, you know, the, both in terms of the channels and the way in which sort of technology is uh, transforming everyday life. Are we seeing a softening of the, some of these uh, hardline viewpoints, very sort of old fashioned perspectives, or do they still remain? They're just trans transferred onto the kind of digital de generation? I think uh, culture is very sticky, um, particularly yeah. when it is to do with holding power. And okay. so in many patriarchal cultures, it is about letting go of power. And it's very rare that you voluntarily do that. I'm not mm. saying that things are stat uh, static and it doesn't change, but oftentimes that change is not visible because there's enormous amount of fear because the old guard is very powerful and has an army online yeah. that can really break you down. So it is no wonder that we see a lot of polarizing views because mm. the middle ground, which is a substantive middle ground, does not have the appetite or stamina to uh, get into that toxicity, right? And Absolutely. most of they don't want yeah. to be the target of that sort of hate. So what we will be seeing and we are already seeing is a lot of uh, withdrawing from the publicness and moving into, say, encrypted platforms okay. like WhatsApp groups. Yeah. In fact, uh, one can argue that the future elections in many parts of the global south and even perhaps in the global north will be uh, enacted behind encrypted platforms. Right. And we're going to have an enormous challenge in trying to understand because we don't have access to that data. We can't just yeah. scrape the internet and say, okay, right. uh, based on our data analytics, this looks like a trend. These are concerns. And mm. we're going to be very seriously derailed because that's not reflecting the majority views that yeah. are doing it for their own mental and physical health behind these uh walls right for mm. yeah so so that's a big question how are we going to do that right yeah taking the temperature of what hap happening is gonna be much more difficult if people don't dare to actually express their views their feelings or their support uh online in most of the public channels um you know a lot of the the futurists and commentators are going to get things very very wrong because they won't be able to sort of uh, take the temperature in the same way that they can today yeah i mean that being said, right, I mean, uh, I'm a digital anthropologist, and what this means is I study how people use digital media and how they give meaning to it and mm. how do they make sense of it. And, um, you know, one of the ways in which we can approach it is to, is to get deeply contextual 
and you know understand why people do what they do yeah. so this means a very sort of messy on the ground research to offset massive data scraping which could be extraordinarily wrong just because you have a lot of data <laughs> yes. doesn't mean you have meaningful and you know yeah. uh, quality data right mm. and so uh this is basically what i do is trying to get at the heart of why does a small group of people in marginalized contexts do what they do in terms of their perspectives on like why do they take high risks in saudi arabia to be visible and uh heard despite the you know morality police and what not mm, right yeah. uh why do people express their political views and if you get to the heart of a small community i argue that uh you know time and again i've been making my case that it is repurposeful because you can repurpose it because you have to understand that a marginalized community in india and a one in nigeria or in you know any part of latin america have mm. much more in common and are motivated by certain kind of innate concerns and aspirations based on these sort of rigid rules and they if you can understand one group or you do a couple of groups you can understand and get a tone of yeah. how people think and do and basically at the heart of the matter why why do they choose to engage or disengage and how do they plan on moving forward So mm. that can actually be much more meaningful the sort of small data yeah. can truly give us more insight than the so-called big data and mm-hmm. I'm not saying either or but we've definitely you know overemphasized big data as if it's a be all end all and I think yeah. we, there's a turn you know yeah. well I think that's life in general we we overestimate the big stuff and we underestimate the small stuff and I think <laughs> that's probably the same thing with data uh, these days Payal and you know if if i if i ask you to get your crystal ball out and look into the future um where do you see th- see things heading in terms of uh, increased digitalization but also the increased use of ai and how much will ethics be pushed to the fore in the uh, in, in in the future uh, paradigm in, in 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 terms of how society is looking at these issues you know um I think uh particularly with major disruptions with open AI and ChatGPT and other kinds of technologies mm. in the uh you know months that we've seen how it plays out um you know it uh brings to question why we continue remaining uh you know uh remaining uh within the context of the global north when much of the experimentation with these tools are happening in the global south right uh, for instance the first layers of jobs that are at highest risk are the ones that get outsourced right, right. uh so that's and so they are the you know whether they are the intermediaries and in factories in vietnam cambodia india they are the most uh mm-hmm. urgently experimenting with open ai in ways that they can actually use it to create value add value and it is basically a aspect of survival yeah so yeah. they are being driven by not just curiosity but sheer survival and you know if that's your motivation you're going to figure out a way in which it does not replace you but rather you can leverage on it to you know empower you in a way that you can reinvent yourself yes so if yeah. we can refocus what's happening there we may get a perspective because they are ahead of the curve 
And mm. actually, I'm not, you know, if you just look back about the few, what happened with crypto, uh, the biggest and the most massive experiments was happening in Venezuela, Lebanon, and many of these contexts because it was an existential crisis. If yeah. they did not experiment with it, their actual savings of people would disappear, right? Because yeah. of the economies. Or yeah. if you want to see the future of solar power, uh, solar energy, you had to look at China and East Asia because they have massive populations. They cannot afford to sustain those populations yes. yeah. with these extraordinarily limited access to resources. <laughs> so mm. basically any of the, you know, a past, I mean, a relatively recent past, that is, you know, groundbreaking technologies have seen it play out very fast and, uh, you know, very soon upfront in the global south. So the same yeah. out currently, and but we still have the sort of condescending view that we innovate in the West and disseminate to the rest. And that will be our downfall if we don't look and try to learn for, you know, uh, from yeah. the global south and how to, you know, ensure that this works for us, these innovations, mm. right? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, your collaboration is essential, whether it's forced or it, it's self-enlightened. Uh, these are things that need to happen. And I think that you, you, you really sort of underline the key point here. It's sort of reassessing that relationship between uh, uh, the North and the global South, because uh, this is something that needs to adapt. And a lot of the sort of the focus, the innovation and some of the entrepreneurship and development is actually taking place there, as opposed to the traditional uh, 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 sectors and geographies that you would expect. So I think opening the eyes to the reality is going to be something that's crucial for the future. But in some cases, not easy to do Payal. let's be honest about it it's gonna it's gonna take uh, a lot of uh, a lot of struggle to bring people forward no absolutely it's um it's enough uh but we we, we don't have a choice right now because these are such formidable technologies yeah. that we would be you know ri ridiculously stupid to yeah. not look for answers anywhere where we can and, yeah. you know, uh, when I say we, I count myself as part of the privileged few because I live in the Netherlands. I, you know, I right. enjoy a liberal democracy, a massive safety net. So there's not an existential crisis to, we have, you know, reinvent myself because I always have the welfare state behind right. me, right? So mm. think about these uh, sort of uh, safety, uh, uh, these guardrails and safety nets, and none of that really quite exists in many ways in many contexts out there. Mm. So, you know, there's a sort of a humbling that, uh, you know, we need to go through in order to recognize that, you know, much of the innovation comes out of necessity and not yes. out of curiosity, which we yeah. would love to believe because we have this romantic notion of you know the genius in the lab experimenting mm. and playing around because you're so passionate and mm. this whole silicon valley is created out of sheer passion right and it's far from that because yeah. you know um most of what we will be doing is existential in mm. the future
Yeah. Necessity is always the mother of invention. And I think in the case of technology, AI, and even ethics, it's not going to be a difference there. So, Payal, I really appreciate your time and uh, uh, giving us uh, this really fascinating insights. And I do hope you'll come back to uh, reassess and tell us where we are from uh, uh, from uh, from anthropological uh, viewpoint as well because there's so much change and so much happening so quickly as well thanks so much glenn i really appreciate this conversation and uh looking forward to talking again thank you bye